welcome to the Harbour City Podcast. We are a church in the East African port city of Durban, South Africa. Get to know us better at harbourcity.co.za or at Harbour City DBN on social media. We are currently going through the book of Galatians and we hope you enjoy this message. I want to show you a short clip and um, it's a clip of probably one of the greatest pop collaborations in the last 10 years. Uh, so, so we're going to watch a short clip, um, and uh, and then I'll explain it quickly. It's really just funny. Who remembers that moment when it first came out? Yo, I remember when that came out. Uh, we were sharing it with everyone we knew. We were like, this is insane. It can't be a real goat. Um, but it, it was a real goat uh, that uh, was in that clip, at least, not in the original song. But I, I, I used to go probably for about five years in a row, we'd go and do missionary work up in Mozambique. And uh, part of the reason why I knew this could definitely be true was the one year we were up in in Mozambique there were a few of us I was actually sharing a tent with uh, my best friend a guy called Gunther and we were sharing this tent and it was the middle of the night in this community in Mutarara and we woke up both of us like sitting straight up we were like there's a demon possessed person in the community ching chong cha who's getting out I'm not getting out like we were ching chong cha like eventually, after about an hour, Gunther braves the zip, gets out, it was a goat. Could have been a demon-possessed goat. Not 100% sure, but the noise that was coming out of this goat was absolutely crazy. Would have put uh, Taylor Swift's goat to shame. Um, but actually, going to trips in Mozambique was such an interesting thing. You, you learnt a lot um, by being in such a foreign culture to, to your own, um, we would be in these very rural areas, kind of in the middle of Mozambique, and, uh, and you would have these different experiences. So I remember the first time I was preaching, I was preaching in a place called Doha, and uh, the church was very simple, uh, kind of like brick building, no windows in the side, only one kind of room, with very short kind of like pews where people would come in. There was no kidsmen, there was no like mother's feeding room, nothing like that. Um, and, and everything would just happen within this kind of building. So there I was preaching, probably about 24 at the time, was, had been working at the church for a little bit. And I remember getting up in my very first preach here, very new, very white, very from a white suburban church on a 14-acre property with a massive building that had every feature you could want. And there in the front row was the mother's room with ladies that were very happy to breastfeed right in front of me. And uh, so awkward. Like, it was awkward for me, but only because I was white and from the suburbs in Pinetown and realized it wasn't awkward for anyone else. 
um, but me. But what I learned is that one of the things that happens when you go and you do church in different spaces, when you're exposed to church from different cultures, is you learn that so much of what you think is amazing about church is often just linked to your own culture. There's a lot of stuff there that is because I'm from Pine Town in a white western kind of suburban church. Some of what happens there like almost offends your sense of what church is like. So one of the things that I remember happening, and this is, uh, I, I still feel terrible about this, I, I wasn't involved, but um, I just remember one of the meetings, someone was talking on marriage, and uh, in church in the middle of Mozambique, you, you would have, whether you like it or not, probably for most of, of us in, in kind of the world we live in now would be offended by this, but uh, there, rural Mozambique, in the church, you would have men sitting on one side, women sitting on the other. That's how it was. It just, you know, that's how it was. I remember this guy getting up, he's preaching on marriage, and pretty much rebuked people because they weren't sitting next to their wives. And I cringe now, thinking at how cultural that moment was, how much we missed the gospel. Um, and to come to Galatians 2. Galatians 2, to me, is the chapter that I think all of us can be really thankful for. The reason why you and I, sitting in hot Durban, can be sitting in shorts with slops today in church is because of Galatians 2. The reason why I can be preaching in a t-shirt and maybe down the road at a different time in the day someone will be preaching in a suit is because of Galatians 2. The reason why the church can be culturally diverse, not uniform in its culture like every other religion in the world, the reason why Christianity is culturally diverse is because of the fight that happens in Galatians 2. Galatians 2 stands as like this pivot center point moment where Paul is fighting for the fact that Christianity is a message, not a culture. Christianity is the message of the death and the resurrection of Christ. And because of that death and resurrection, you and I are saved by grace alone. It is the announcement, the proclamation of the gospel, the announcement of the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, lived and died and rose again. It is not a culture. And that is the reason why today, here in Durban, I can preach in a t-shirt. Maybe I should have been wearing shorts. Maybe I'm a little bit too conservative there. But it's the reason why I can be preaching like this, and you can go to an Anglican church where someone will wear a robe, and you can go to a Catholic church where the priests will dress differently, and you can go to a church down the road maybe where someone's wearing a suit, the reason why we are culturally diverse 2,000 years ago is because Paul fought a couple of battles that he highlights in the continuation of his autobiography in Galatians 2. And uh, so for me, I think this is a huge chapter. If we want to be a church that is able to plant churches and able to engage with the diverse communities that exist in South Africa, then Galatians 2 is something we need to wrestle with. If we wanna be a church 
who is able to transcend beyond the difficulties of the history of South Africa, and some of what I say is probably going to be a little bit difficult and awkward uh, this afternoon. I've struggled even preparing this sermon because some of it is so difficult and so awkward because our history in South Africa is so divided. But if we want to be a church that can go beyond our history and move into our future, we need to wrestle with Galatians 2. And so we're going to talk about Galatians 2 over the next couple of weeks. Um, Peter's going to come in. He's going to speak on Galatians 2 verse 10, which is that passage, remember the poor. And, uh, and I'm excited that Peter's coming to, to preach on that because more than any person I know and have ever met, I think Peter, Peter what, lives out that reality in, in such a profound and significant way. And he's going to be preaching here on the 20th, remember the poor. But for us, over the next two weeks, we're going to try and break down Galatians 2. Um, and so I've called this, uh, this message, it's called No Second Rate Citizens. Uh, no Second Rate Citizens. The kingdom of God has no second rate citizens. And Galatians 2, Paul is going to fight against the mentality that some people in the kingdom are second rate. He stands up and he fights and he's going to wrestle through that. But before that, I, I think one of the interesting things is Paul is following on from Jesus. Um, Jesus tells probably one of the most offensive parables. It's the one that we tell tell our kids in, in such a nice way, and, and, and our kids recite it, and uh, we probably don't understand exactly how offensive it is. But Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, I don't know if you heard of that, if you know it, if you can remember the Good Samaritan. But basically, the Good Samaritan, a teacher of the law, comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, you know, what must we do? He tells him, ah, oh, you know, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as uh, yourself. And then, him trying to justify himself, he says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan is a story about a person that gets robbed on a highway. And he gets robbed on the highway, he gets beaten, he's left to die. Um, on, on the side of the road. And a, a priest comes past, a, a Jewish priest comes past. He sees, um, he sees this guy who's been beaten and he crosses the road, goes to the other side, and he neglects him. Um, and the priest neglects him in one sense because if he touches the guy who is bleeding, he is going to be unclean for seven days. So he doesn't want to touch this guy because then he can't go and do his job. So what does he do? He neglects him, goes to the other side of the road so that he can kind of feel like he's okay with, with life and carries on. Then a scribe, a person who, who would have copied down the scriptures, he comes past um, and he also sees this guy and does the exact same thing as the priest. He steps over to the other side. Now, if you were a Jewish person at this point, listening to Jesus, you would have been on the edge of your seats going like this, oh, I know where the story's going. I've got you, Jesus. I get where the story is going. Jesus is the fighter for the everyday man. 
Like, we love Jesus. Look at his disciples. They were fishermen. Oh, Jesus is the hero of the people. We know where this story is going. Uh, and so they probably, on the edge of their seat, and they're going to be like a normal Jewish fisherman, walks down the road and helps the guy. You know, he's the neighbor. We love it. Jesus then throws everyone off, and he says, no, a Samaritan comes along, and he tends to the, the needs of this person. He helps them. What J Jesus is doing is he's telling them, at that point, the most offensive person that they could think of is the person who is the neighbor. It would have been super offensive. Could you imagine someone telling the story in the late 70s in Soweto? I imagine if Jesus was in Soweto in the late 70s, telling the story a bit like this. Sharpville massacres happen, very difficult time uh, of our country, lots of racial tension. Imagine Jesus telling the story about a Catholic priest, a pastor, everyone's going the everyday Man, Jesus is fighting for the everyday Soweto man. And then Jesus says, a white Afrikaner at that point comes and helps this person. It would have been so offensive. And we can tell that story in many different ways. But what Jesus is doing is Jesus is showing us that in the kingdom, there are no second-rate citizens. There are no second-rate citizens. And this is what Paul is going to fight for in this passage. And I've got three points. The first point is around Titus. Because what, what Paul does at this moment in his autobiography is he introduces two new characters. He introduces Titus and he introduces Peter. Up until now, he's kind of been telling his story. But as he goes on with the story, he's going to talk about a guy called Titus who was a Gentile believer, who was a follower of Jesus, who was a ministry accomplice with Paul. He's going to tell a bit of the story of Titus and then he's going to tell the story of Peter, and in both times he's going to tell how he's fighting for the authentic nature of the gospel and how we as the church can never allow there to be second-rate citizens amongst us. And the first is Titus, and uh, point one is about the things that we do that we expect people to do to become equals. So the story of Titus is a bit like this. If, if you read it here, Paul says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. The matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give into them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be pre preserved for you. What's happening at this moment? Paul is giving us a snapshot. At this moment in, in uh, uh, the Paul's kind of autobiography, he's got this ministry accomplice, Titus, a preacher of the gospel. He's a Gentile. They're going to Jerusalem. Some people have come and they realize, hey, here's a Greek guy. He's a Gentile. He's coming to Jerusalem. He's not circumcised. I know, awkward word. Sorry about that. It's going to be said quite a bit through Galatians. But um, he's not circumcised. Don't you know, like, if you want to be like a legitimate Christian, if you want to like not just be like 
an outsider. Remember, if you were a Greek, you weren't allowed in the temple. Like, so they've got this mentality, like you're an outsider. You're, you're, if you want to kind of be an insider in the church, if you want to be like a legitimate Christian, then you need to be circumcised. They weren't fighting Paul on the death and resurrection of Jesus. They were fighting Paul on the application of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that the death and resurrection of Jesus meant that Gentiles didn't have to do all the things Jewish people had to do to be insiders. They were fighting Paul on this issue. But Paul says, he says this, you know what, we didn't give in to them for a moment. We were coming there to explain the gospel they gave us the right hand of fellowship. We we're fighting against this idea that some people are insiders, some people are outsiders, that some people are first-rate citizens. We are Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. Don't you know? We're like the creme de la creme of people. Like everyone else is a second-rate citizen. Paul was fighting for the gospel when he was fighting for the fact that Titus should not be circumcised. They wanted Titus to do stuff to be regarded as equal. They wanted Titus to adhere to some cultural things to be regarded as equal. We do this sometimes. It's a little bit less common now, but imagine church 20 years ago. If I was Eugene standing up here 20 years ago with tattoos on my arm, some people would not listen to me. They would be like, yo, tattoos. Like, now I don't have tattoos, so you're probably not listening to me. The culture's shifted in, in, a, in a very different way. But, but if you had tattoos, you were like a second-rate citizen. Like, how can that person have tattoos? Do they love Jesus? Are they going to be saved? Can Jesus even save someone who, you know, has a tattoo? Mm, I don't know. Debate. No jokes. People would debate this kind of craziness. What is happening? It's the exact same thing as circumcision. We have a cultural preference, and we're going to make it a gospel issue. We're going to make it an issue that has to do with your standing of God. If you've got tattoos, well, you can't be as spiritual as someone who doesn't. And it's not just tattoos. I mean, there, there were a whole bunch of things. I was part of a church when I, I was in my teenage years, and uh, uh, in this church, women had to wear wed head coverings and skirts. And uh, if, if you came to church and you weren't wearing a skirt uh, as a woman, so please don't be offended with me, any woman in the house, just telling you a story right now, but uh, you're welcome to wear pants, yeah. Ooh, awkward, but like at that church, if, if you were a woman that was wearing pants and not a head covering, you would have been regarded as a second-rate citizen. You probably would have been spoken to after the service because they were really good at doing stuff like that. Um, I used to read the NIV. In fact, I still read the NIV, and at that church, they were King James people, and I, I remember someone coming and speaking to me because I was reading the NIV, and they were like, listen, no, you're reading the NIV, but it's, it's just like there's a lot of problems with it, and uh, we think that you need to change the Bible that you read if, uh, if you really want to 
like follow Jesus. Um, and there's this whole bunch of things that we do that we expect other people to do to be regarded as insiders, to be regarded as having a good relationship with God. Women must wear skirts, head coverings. Um, we do this with alcohol. Some churches are teetotalers. Um, teetotalers are you know, a group that doesn't drink alcohol. Um, some churches are teetotaling churches, so if you have a glass of wine, it can be regarded as like, oh, like, what is going on with you? Is your relationship right with Jesus? The act of drinking alcohol is seen as an act that affects your standing with God. Now, I want to be clear is that some things are gospel issues and some things are not. I want to be clear about this because as we read in Acts and as we read your in Galatians, there are times when Paul goes to Jerusalem with Titus and he doesn't need to be circumcised. And he doesn't need to be circumcised because Paul is saying, you're making this guy an insider only if he does this, and that is against the gospel. But he takes Timothy later on to Jerusalem. And what does he do? Timothy gets circumcised. And why does Timothy get circumcised and not Titus? Because Timothy was a Jew. And for whatever reason or another, he didn't get circumcised on the eighth day as he should. So he gets circumcised because it's going to be a cultural hindrance. Remember, Paul says in Corinthians, he says, I'll become all things to all people so that some may be saved. What is he saying at that point? He is saying, I'm willing to adjust how I act and the culture in which I act if it's going to be more effective in reaching people for the gospel. But I am not willing to change if you think it makes me righteous before God. So I will stop drinking if I'm in a community of people. I will stop having a glass of, of wine. I don't really drink, so. But I will stop having a glass of wine if I know it's going to affect the effectiveness of the gospel in a community. But if I'm in a space where people say and get up and say, hey, if you drink wine, your relationship's wrong with Jesus, jolly well, give me the wine, let me pour it and drink it in front of them. Because it's a gospel issue at that point, not a cultural issue. It's an issue where people are saying this action affects our relationship with God. Not just, hey, where's the community? We don't dig that. It's a bit like saying this. We're at Harbor City. We preach in English. Most of our worship is in English. It would be really helpful if you can speak some bit of English when you come to Harbor City. You don't have to, but you know what? You'll probably get a little bit more out of the meeting if you do speak English. It's just who we are. But if you said, hey, people who can't speak English are second-rate citizens, are people that don't, aren't quite right with God, that becomes a gospel issue, not a cultural issue. Because you are saying, in one sense, what you are saying is this one thing about our culture makes us better with God than, this, than not doing this thing. What Paul is fighting for with Titus is he's fighting for the gospel. He is saying to a group of people, he is saying to the Jerusalem infiltrators, the Judaizers, they are, they are called, he is saying that we are free because of Christ. 
the danger that we have is that especially if we are so monocultural, if we, so, if we are only exposed to our own culture, if we only exposed to our own kind of environments, the danger that we have is we begin equating culturally neutral items with righteousness. We begin thinking that things like never having a drop of alcohol, things like tattoos, things like certain ways of dressing and acting have to do with our standing with God. And if we're going to get the gospel, and if we're going to be a people that can reach into a diverse city, into a diverse nation, we have to remember to separate the cultural elements of church from the purity of the gospel message of Jesus. We have to stop expecting people to do certain things to be treated as first-class citizens instead of second-rate citizens. The second point has to do with Peter. What happens is, is Paul ends up rebuking Peter. Um, and he rebukes Peter because Peter goes to Antioch, a Gentile church, predominantly Gentile church. He's eating with Gentile people. And then these Judaizers, people from, from James, come up from Jerusalem to, to Antioch. And they begin, when they come up, Peter starts getting ashamed. He starts well, for whatever reason, we don't know all the intricate details, but he starts separating himself from a group of people um, because of the Gentile, because the Jewish people have arrived. Um, what is he, he doing? Paul says that his actions aren't even just actions of shame, they aren't even just actions of embarrassment. They are actions that go against the very heart of the gospel. Because what Peter is doing at that moment is he's treating one group of people in the church as if they are second rate to another group of people. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Um, uh, I think I've experienced this in different places. But... Uh, what, what can easily happen is that people who are not part of maybe our intellectual class, maybe not part of our economic class, we can look down on certain people in the church and think of them as second rate. And we can begin to be ashamed. Like at one point you can be hanging out with these people, maybe someone who you regard highly walks into the church and now you're like, hmm, this is awkward, need to kind of like step aside, you know, like slowly you turn like your angle, your angle and you walk away like you were never part of the conversation. Paul surprisingly says this is a gospel issue, that this issue of regarding one crowd as not as worthy of your attention as another crowd has to do with the legitimacy of the gospel. 
Maybe we do that with the poor. Maybe we do that across racial lines. Maybe we do that across intellectual lines. Maybe we've got our own arbitrary kind of ideas of who we think are worth our time and who we don't. But what Paul is saying is that when we get this wrong, we are getting the gospel wrong. Why are we getting the gospel wrong? We're getting the gospel wrong, as he goes on and says, because we are justified by faith. What he says is, he says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Essentially, what Paul is, is saying this is that no one has an advantage over anyone else when it comes to the kingdom. He's saying to a Jewish group of people, he's saying to Gentiles in Galatia that he's writing this to, he's saying that no one has a foot up over anyone else. No one is more invited to the table than anyone else. He's saying whether you are Jew or Greek, whether you are Jew or Gentile, whether you are white or black, whether you are English speaking or Zulu speaking, English speaking or Afrikaans speaking, whoever you are, all of us need to be justified by faith. Justification is a legal term. To be justified means to be regarded as right with God. To be regarded as right with God. It's about a legal standing. When someone is justified in the scriptures, it means that they are regarded as people who are right in the eyes of God. What Paul is saying here is that no one will be justified by the works of the law. I love what Tim Keller says here. He says, often Christians who believe in grace are looked down upon because they say, well, if you believe in grace, it means you don't have a high regard for the law. You obviously don't have a high regard for personal righteousness. Uh, but what Tim Keller says is he says, actually, Christians are the only people in the world that have a high regard for righteousness. Because he says, if you would genuinely had a high regard for the law, what you would end up seeing is that you are a lawbreaker, that everyone is a lawbreaker, that the law is absolutely brutal in its demands of our lives, and that it's brutality, it's un like wavering condemnation of us for our wrong would mean that no one would be able to be right before God. A guy called Ray Comfort says this. He says, how many times do you have to lie to be a liar? And he says, well, the best way to think about that is how many times do you have to murder to be a murderer? Um, only once. How many times do you have to be a liar? So probably all of us are liars in this room. Jesus said, even if you hate your brother, if you're angry, if you say to him, you fool, you have committed murder. Like if you go through the list and see how absolutely 
ruthless the law is to us, you realize each and every single person across every culture, across every group, even a few of the Jews who regarded themselves as the people chosen by God would stand condemned. But we are justified, not by what we do. We are justified by what Christ has done. There's this saying that goes like this, justification means just as if I had never sinned. But it's not, that leaves us a little bit short. It's not just as if I had never sinned. What the gospel tells us is that Jesus lived the perfect life. He didn't just come. He didn't just rapture himself into this kind of like moment when he was 33, got hung on a cross, died, rose again, boom, fulfilled his moment, woo, came, did my thing, gospel goes out, woo. Jesus lived the perfect life. He lived the perfect life. He lived the absolute righteous life. He did everything that he should have. He didn't do anything wrong. Jesus lived the perfect life. Justification means not just that God sees us as if we had never sinned, but he sees us as Christ himself is seen. It's not just as if I had never sinned, but it's just as if I had lived as Christ lived. For I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but the life I now live, I live by faith in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying, the reason why there are no second-rate citizens in the kingdom is because our justification, our identity, our standing before God has nothing to do with ourselves. It has everything to do with Jesus. I can't stand up here with Eugene next to me and go, hey, Eugene, you've got tattoos and I don't. I'm sure I'm a little bit more righteous than you. I can't stand next to someone who's a teetotaler and who isn't and say, hey, I've never drunk alcohol. I'm a little bit more righteous with, than you. I can't say, hey, because I'm more intellectual, I've read more books, I understand more of theology than I am more righteous than you. The gospel, what Paul fought for, what he fights for in Galatians 2, is that no one is righteous because of themselves. We are righteous because of Jesus. There is no second-rate citizens in the kingdom. There is no one church that has it all, that has it all together. There is no one culture that has it all, that has it all together. There is only Christ. And what Paul fought for, what you and I should fight for, is not for cultural Christianity, but for the message of the gospel of Jesus. The message that Jesus came, lived the perfect life, he died and he rose again so that literally anyone from any culture in any space that would put their faith in Christ would be regarded as equals to anyone else. Can we stand?